For me, Jonathan Edwards is the most important shaper of my life and theology of any other human being outside the Bible, with the possible exception of my father. And I say possible exception of my father because I don't think we remember most of the shaping that our parents do, and so it's hard for us to assess the depth and degree to which our parents shape us. But if I leave my, my father out of account, uh, Edwards is the most important shaper of my thinking and my enjoyment of God. So the debt that I am paying in these days of his 300th birthday is a deep one. Here's the way I plan to approach it. I would like to tell you his story in a few minutes, just walk you through his life for those of you who may not know who he is, and then uh, walk you through my life of encounter with him. So his life first and my life with him and bringing it to the point of the God-enthralled vision of reality that he had. He was born in 1703 in Windsor, Connecticut, the only son of a pastor who had ten daughters. And it was a tall family, and his father, Timothy, used to boast or lament that he had 60 feet of daughters. <laughs> he taught Jonathan Latin when he was six, sent him off to Yale when he was 12. He graduated from Yale in 1720 and gave the valedictory address in Latin. And then he continued his studies two or three, two more years there. And then he took a pastorate in New York for a very short time in a Presbyterian church. And then he came back and was a tutor in Yale uh, for several years. 1723, so he's 20 years old now, he met uh, Sarah Pierpont. And on the front page of his Greek grammar, he wrote the only kind of love song that he was capable of writing, and here's what he wrote. And it's inside the flap of his Greek testament of all places for a love song. They say there is a young lady in New Haven who is loved of that great being who made and rules the world, and that there are certain seasons in which this great being in some way or other invisible comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight, and that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him. She is a wonderful sweetness, calmness, and universal benevolence of mind, especially after this great God has manifested himself to her. She will sometimes go about from place to place singing sweetly, and seems to be always full of joy and pleasure, and no one knows for what. She loves to be alone, walking in the fields and groves, and seems to have someone invisible, always conversing with her. She was 13 years old when he wrote that. And he was 17 uh, or 20. And the result was that they got married some years later. And then he became the pastor of uh, Northampton. And after that, he was uh, fired 23 years later from his church. You see I'm collapsing this down into a very quick summary. 
The reason he was fired uh, is a mixture of things. It was personal blunder as a pastor, which we won't go into the details, but I think he would probably acknowledge that. An insensitivity, a bad judgment call in some disciplinary things, and a theological difference that broke the camel's back in his view of the Lord's Supper. And so he was dismissed after 23 years, which is especially meaningful to me since I have been at my church for 23 years. (laughs) And you never know what might happen. 17... uh, 58, he uh, died. But in between the death was an eight-year tenure as a missionary pastor in a small town called Stockbridge and where he was a pastor of a little church and cared for the Indians and catechized the boys. And, and then he went down to Princeton to be the president. And after he was there for two months, he got smallpox by taking a vaccination However, they did it in those days. It was very experimental, and, and it backfired, and he got the disease. This, his throat swelled, and he couldn't take fluids in order to kill the fever. And as he saw the, the end of his earthly pilgrimage coming near at age 54, he said this to Lucy, his daughter, who was with him. Sarah was still back in Stockbridge, packing to come down. Dear Lucy, it seems to me to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you and therefore give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. And I hope she will be supported under so great a trial and submit cheerfully to the will of God. And as to my children, you are now to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you to seek a father who will never fail you. And he died. And uh, it was March 22, 1758. And... His wife was told by a letter from the physician, and on April 3rd, she wrote to her eldest daughter, Esther, these amazing words. And I I close this little life part with them because not only are they very moving, but they are an embodiment of Jonathan Edwards' theology. A theology of the sovereignty of God is a precious thing. In times like this, if your God is good. What shall I say? She wrote to her daughter. What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am, and love to be. And that's absolutely true. Oh, what a legacy her husband 
left to us. And if you don't know Edwards, uh, not all of you will enjoy reading him, but some of you may find life there that is absolutely the deepest, sweetest life that you can find because it so amazingly mediates Christ and the scriptures and the cross. So let me back up now or maybe go forward and walk you through my encounter with Jonathan Edwards chronologically and let you just hear me encounter the books that I've read over the years, winding up where I am today and what I love so deeply about the vision of God that this man had. When I was in seminary, a very wise teacher who's gone to be with the Lord now told me that it would be a smart thing to do if we all were to pick out one great mind and focus on him and master his thinking in theology, in Bible. One great mind, like a Luther or a Calvin or an Augustine or an Edwards. One great mind, instead of always dabbling on the surface, just reading widely, You know, the reason most people read widely is because they want to tell people the names of the books that they've read recently. And if you read deeply and therefore not widely, you just don't have much to talk about, you know, except reality, truth. So the advice was sink a shaft in the earth and you might strike oil. Whereas just raking along the top all the time in many, many places, you'll find Leaves. And I thought that was very good advice, and so I have undertaken to read Edwards ever since then, which was now 30-plus years ago. I went to seminary not having a clue who Edwards was except for that sermon, which Mark is going to preach, and I'd never read it because it's only printed in pieces in high school anthologies. And they're generally the pieces that will turn as many people off as possible because nobody in secular education likes Jonathan Edwards except for his philosophical genius, which they have a hard time putting together with his radically biblical, God-centered theology. So I came with a very prejudiced, jaundiced view of Edwards to seminary. And the first thing I read was in Jeffrey Bromley's church history class, the essay on the Trinity, which was an effort to conceptualize as much as a human can with biblical informed thinking, how to conceive of a three in one. How is God three and how is God one? I found it conceptually very helpful. I won't go into the detail except to mention one methodological, practical thing that has to this day helped me tremendously in my walk with God and my worship of God. He was criticized in that book, or in response to that book, for um, trying too hard to understand the Trinity and removing mystery. And his response to that was two things. One, the Bible reveals vastly more than we imagine about God as three in one, and we have scarcely begun to probe the depths of what is really there for us to understand by revelation. And secondly, 
he said, there is plenty of mystery left after I've done with my little efforts. And in fact, he said, we will intensify our worship more if we press in and up as far as we can, rather than stopping early and saying, isn't it a mystery? Let us all bow down and worship. Now, the way that landed on me 30 years ago was very significant because there were people in my class in seminary who had a very anti-intellectualistic, anti-rational, stop questioning, probing, digging, trying to understand because worship comes from the great unknown and mysterious. If you can understand God, why would you want to worship him? He'd be equal with you. And that never quite sat right with me. You can't sing too many worship songs about what you don't know about God. I mean, one or two. You can write one or two songs about how little you know of God and feel really little and and worshipful. But you can't write more than two or three. Worship does not primarily flow from what we do not yet know. Worship primarily flows from what we have been able to see of the wonder. And it just seems so strange to me that people would be pushing on ignorance for the sake of worship. Just don't go there. Don't rise there. Don't climb there. Because you get to the top, you won't worship. You'll stand on top of God. And I just thought, there is no danger of that happening. (laughs) In fact, I have a conception of eternity, of of spending about 10,000 years climbing the Alps of God's all-satisfying glory, discovering new things all the way, and at the last year of the 10,000, pulling myself up over the crest and looking, and there stretches 10,000 miles, and another mountain range disappears into the sky, and you spend another 10,000 years climbing and discovering new things about the glory and wonder of God. You pull yourself up over 20,000 years into eternity and there goes another one. And that will happen forever and ever and ever. You will never be bored in heaven. An infinite God revealing himself to a finite mind requires eternity. It's the knowledge of God, not the ignorance of God, that inspires God-exalting awe and worship. That's what I got methodologically, personally, from Essay Concerning the Trinity. The next book I read was Freedom of the Will. I found it totally compelling, philosophically and in perfect harmony, what was emerging in my mind as a biblical theology of freedom and the will and sovereignty of God, it is, if you don't know the book, a classic defense of Calvinism, though he says this in the preface, I should not take it at all amiss to be called a Calvinist for distinction's sake, though I utterly disclaim a dependence on Calvin or believing the doctrines which I hold because he believed and taught them. 
and cannot justly be charged with believing in everything just as he taught. So, yes, it's fair historically to call him a Calvinist, but he does not want to be typed, and he shouldn't be typed. He breaks a lot of molds. Here's the thesis of the book. Quote, this is from his own page 87. God's moral government over mankind, he is treating them as moral agents, making them the objects of his commands, counsels, calls, warnings, is not inconsistent with a determining disposal of all events of every kind throughout the universe in his providence, either by positive efficiency or permission. Long sentence to say this. The book is written to defend that God can beckon you to come with open arms, authentically, and be the one who ultimately and decisively decides whether you come. That's what he wrote to defend. Seems absolutely paradoxical and contradictory to many people. If it does to you and you're of a philosophical ilk, then read the book. It is the hardest book probably to get through. It is very weighty. Probably the most compelling thing that's been written on that or the most rigorous thing. I say that with some support because you mentioned David Wells coming shortly. David Wells at a conference at our church said, when somebody asked him, what books have influenced you most? He said, Jonathan Edwards on the will was the watershed event of my life. So when he comes, you ask him to tell you about that event. And it may be for you as well. If you struggle with the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, then read that book. He argues that the, the will is determined by motives, and motives are not ultimately controllable by men, but are given. That's the thesis. I think it's biblical, and I commend it to you. And that's all that I read in seminary of Jonathan Edwards, which is where I first began to read him. Here's what happened next. Noel and I got in our 65 fastback Mustang, and drove up the coast from Pasadena across the top of the United States down to, to Barnesville, Georgia, after I graduated from Fuller in June of 1971. And we had there several weeks before we were uh, to get on the airplane to go to Germany and uh, study for three years. And so I sat on the swing in the car port, I guess you'd call it, under a huge hickory tree and read The Nature of True Virtue and was blown away by the God-centeredness of what virtue really is and really must be. Uh, just a little aside, I, I don't remember... Too many sentences in the book. I just remember that when I was done, the frame of mind that I was in concerning virtue as a certain kind of moral beauty and symmetry in the universe 
that I wrote a poem called Georgia Woods. I was just, I was just sitting there and I was so overwhelmed by the sheer reality of the beauty of virtue that I looked on the woods in a different way. Noel's mom's place is, is on a little knoll just totally surrounded by woods and a little clearing at the top. And that's where I was reading this. Perhaps the best way to say what I learned from the nature of true virtue was this. If you leave God out of your definition of what is virtuous, so somebody says, now define for me virtue. What constitutes a virtuous act? And you define it leaving God out? Edwards would say, though you define it so as to encompass the entirety of the universe in your goodwill, you are infinitely parochial. That's his phrase. Though you define the nature of true virtue such that it encompasses the entirety of the universe, all angels, all demons, all planets, all stars, all humanity, all time, minus God, you have become infinitely parochial. I mean, when you read things like that, you, you just have to step back and catch your breath and say, is that serious? <laughs> and then the obviousness of it lands on you. I mean, God as a reality simply one day said, let there be a universe. And it happened. But God is absolute reality. The universe is totally contingent upon his moment by moment, holding it in being by his thought. It's sort of a shadow. It's a little thing that he just decided to do one day. And we're impressed with it. It's very big. Billions of light years across. Long time. And if your concept of virtue can embrace all of that with goodwill and not God, you are infinitely parochial. Everything minus God is tiny and distorted and false. Everything minus God is false. That's what I got from the nature of true virtue. Then we were in Germany. And in Germany, I read three more works of Edwards and several biographies. Biography by Hopkins, Henry Pamford Parks. One of the most memorable readings was with Noel, sitting on our little beige couch, used furniture we picked up in our little flat in Germany. And I was trying to be a good husband, married now for three and a half, four years, setting a good pattern early on. Our son was about to be born, first son, and I wanted to set a good pattern of having devotions and reading something substantial with Noel. Easier to do when you don't have kids, I admit, but get started early if you're newly married. And what I said maybe we could read was Jonathan Edwards' Charity and His Fruits, 330-page exposition of 1 Corinthians 13, which we did. 
out loud to each other. And we both agreed it was unbelievably verbose (laughs) and unbelievably beautiful. Love shone beautifully through Edward's exposition of 1 Corinthians 13. One little paragraph, not the best paragraph, but it's Washington here, and so I chose this one. It's kind of a political city, you know, and people think about this sort of thing. And so I want you to know Edwards, though he was a man who knew his hell, he knew his heaven, he knew his heart, he also knew his society. A man of a right spirit, he says, is not a man of narrow and private views, but is greatly interested and concerned for the good of the community to which he belongs and particularly of the city or village in which he resides, and for the true welfare of the society of which he is a member. And a man of truly Christian spirit will be earnest for the good of his country and of the place of his residence, and will be, will be disposed to lay himself out for its improvement. So he had a public heart as well as an intensely personal One, that was charity and its fruits. The second one in Germany was in a pantry. We had this flat. It had a hallway. Here was a bathroom here. I could tell you an interesting story about my little son. In fact, I will tell you the story. told it's totally irrelevant, but I feel like telling it. (laughs) My son was born, and he he cried a lot. And I was a new daddy. I didn't know what you're supposed to do. And I would, I would carry him, pat, 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 pat. And we would walk back and forth in the hall. And, and when you get to the hall, the bathroom's here, and there's this electric water heater hanging on the wall. That's the way they do it in Europe, by and large. You heat the water right there. And it had a red light on it. And in the dark, all you could see was the red light. And I would turn and say, pat, 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 pat. And here's this little child, under one years old, on my shoulder like this. We did that for months. How old was he when he said this next thing? Ten years old. One night, Noel's putting him to bed. And he says, what was that red light? (laughs) Under one years old. That has nothing to do with anything I'm saying here (laughs) at all. I just thought it's unbelievably interesting. And she explained to him that when he was little, he saw that red light every night. In, here come, here's the kitchen. I'm, I'm doing the, the apartment so you can picture this pantry. You walk into the kitchen, and then the way they build this building is off the kitchen, out from the building, is a cold pantry. It's not heated. And uh, out there you put your food. Now, they have turned it into a little room with a heater in there, and that was my study. It's probably about five feet wide and eight feet long, something like that. And that's where I read the most important book probably that I've ever read outside the Bible. Namely, the end for which God created the world. The end for which God created the world. And uh, when I wanted to pay a tribute to Edwards and reissue one of his books, that's the one I chose. and, And I put my own... Appreciation of Edwards on the front of it. It's called a passion, God's passion for his glory. Now, let's linger on this one because this begins to shape the God-entranced worldview that I love so much. 
Edwards' answer to the question why God created the universe, the world, is to display the fullness of his glory for his people to know, praise, and enjoy. To display his perfections, his beautiful perfections for us to know and to praise and to enjoy. Here's a very important paragraph. It appears that all that is ever spoken of in Scripture as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. In the creature's knowing, esteeming, loving, rejoicing in, and praising God, the glory of God is both exhibited and acknowledged. His fullness is received and returned. Here is both emanation and remination. The refulgence shines upon and into the creature and is reflected back to the luminary. The beams of glory come from God and are something of God and are refunded back again to their original so that the whole is of God and in God and to God. And God is the beginning, middle and end in this affair. And those kinds of sentences in a pantry in Germany back in 1972 and three took my breath away. They simply took my breath away. But Edwards puts a twist on it. That somebody asked me, like this guy here, Mark Dever, today in an interview, why I might have a big celebration of Edwards this year, but probably will not have the same big celebration of John Calvin in 2009 at his 500th birthday. And I simply said that the impact of Calvin on me has been nothing like the impact of Edwards. And this twist I'm about to talk here isn't in John Calvin. Anything like it is in Edwards. And to me, it was what made all the difference. The twist is this. Edwards did not just stress that God created the universe for his glory. Nor did he just stress that the glory of God or glorifying God, is the chief end of man and to enjoy him forever. Rather, Edwards taught more clearly than anybody I have ever read that God created us with the chief end of glorifying him by enjoying him forever. This I do not find in other Reformed thinkers. It is everywhere in the end for which God created the world and elsewhere if you're watching for it. So when the catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? Edwards would not stumble over my paraphrase. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Now, I'll read you that from Jonathan Edwards himself, lest you think, uh, I'm making it up because that insight that God is glorified in my being satisfied in him. That's my way of saying it. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. That's just a Piper rhyme to express an Edwards 
truth and a biblical one. So here's the Edwards version of it. He didn't, he didn't bother himself with rhymes. God glorifies himself toward the creatures in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding. Two, in communicating himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing in and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which he has of him makes of himself. Here's the key sentence. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. That was an absolutely life-changing sentence for me. God is glorified not merely by his glory being seen, known, articulated accurately in good theology, but also by its being delighted in. In other words, delight in the glory of God is not a little, the Germans would say, unhangsel. It just doesn't dangle out there as a little non-essential. It's built into the fabric of the universe. Emotions in Edwards are cosmically important. I'd never read anything like that. I'd read about emotions. They were always kind of the things that, you know, they're made. Don't watch out for your emotions. And nobody had ever done a serious thing about emotions. And here comes this massive statement. I keep reading. When those that see it, the glory of God, delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. God made the world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory and that it might be received both by the mind and the heart. He that testifies his idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also of his delight in it. That's the most important paragraph in Edwards that I ever read. It changed everything. All I have done for 30 years is try to unpack that paragraph in everything I've written and in all my preaching. I just want to help people get the idea of God right and then get their hearts through an appropriately vigorous delight right so that God gets his whole glory from the church for which Christ died to bring this about. An unenjoyed God looks beggarly. You think this is a small thing. You may say, um, well, I'm not wired to that way. I'm just, I'm an intellectual person or I'm not an emotional person or whatever. Well, I'm not asking for a certain personality. Neither was Edwards. His was very different. He was pretty staid in his preaching. Not like me flailing around up here with my arms. But there was an intensity and a depth of spiritual feeling in Edwards that was great. Not enjoying God is not a Christian option in his universe. That was the third book 
that, I mean, the second book that I read, which explains the existence of the third book that I read. And, and if you want a place to start in Edwards, start here, namely the treatise concerning the religious affections. That was his mature assessment of what had happened in the revival that he was under God, the instrument of a great awakening in New England. And he wrote in 17, I think it came out in, in 1746, I think he preached it in 1742. He was analyzing what's authentic in this revival, what's not authentic, what makes, tr- what, what is true faith and true grace in the heart, and what's false and hypocritical grace in the heart. And he wrote this book and finish the apartment, you take a left at the end of the hall and you go into the living room, which was all of a piece with the bedroom. And over here was a rocking chair that I bought for Noel so she could rock her first baby, which we gave to Karsten now. And he's got our first grandson as of a couple of weeks ago. And I sat in that rocking chair when she wasn't there on Sunday night for about a year reading the religious affections as my Sunday night worship. And I read it that slowly. It's about 400 plus pages. And I just read a few pages and paused, trembled sometimes, wept sometimes, laughed sometimes. Because what you're doing is you're coming alongside a man who, for whatever divine providential reason, had been given the gift to see. To see in the Bible what most people don't see. That's one of the reasons we have teachers in the church is that some have been given to see. And when they say, others see. God doesn't just deal with individuals saying, now, you go to the Bible and you'll see all you need to see, and you go to the Bible and you'll see all you need to see. He puts us in churches. And he puts elders and teachers in churches. And then he grants those elders gifts of teaching. And part of the gift of teaching is to see what others don't see and to say. And then to have lights go on in those So I did that with treatise concerning the religious affections. And I would just guess that at the root, the reason he had to eventually write a book like this is because he had elevated affections so highly. He had made it essential to the universe. He had made it essential to God's reason for creating all things. You better write a book on the affections because you've just elevated them to an incomparably great place in Christian thinking and in reality. So that was the end of my reading of Edwards in Germany. And I'm going to stop there. I've read lots more since then, but now I'm going to just unpack implications for the last few minutes. And I've got five or six implications of this God-enthralled vision of reality. Number one, we must always pursue our own and others' joy in God as a solemn duty. If emotions slash affections have the place in God's economy that Edwards has just described them as essential to glorifying God, your indifference to whether you pursue your joy in God is sinful, wrong, destructive to your own soul. You may not be indifferent to whether you are pursuing joy. Here's the way Edwards put it for his own preaching. Oh, this, this just blew me away early on in my preaching life 20 plus years ago when I read this. 
I think I've got it memorized, but I'll make sure I get it just right. I, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can. Now, that just sounds like some charismania manipulator, you know, going to use the music, going to use the, the lights, going to use everything. And I'm going to get these people whipped up to a frenzy and then they'll give. We'll spread the money out on the platform. Put a big gold chair back here. Let me, let me go back and try to finish that. I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can, provided they are affected with nothing but the truth and with the affections that are not disagreeable to the nature of what they are affected with. This man throws away no words. Truth, light coming into the mind, should produce tremendous affections that are shaped and formed by the nature of the truth. If it's a truth about hell, an appropriate affection would be trembling, fear, sorrow, grief, weeping, terror. If it's a picture of the glories of heaven, it would be exultation and praise and delight and treasuring and wonder. And so if you find your people laughing at the wrong time. It may be that you've given bad light or you haven't cared about bringing your ability to work the audience underneath the truth of Scripture. Any skilled communicator can produce pretty much whatever he wants to produce in terms of tears or laughter. And there's a great sense of power. When you can make people laugh, Power. You can make them cry. Power. But if you say, I am about truth, and I would like to say it as well as I can say it faithfully to the Scripture, and then you see people rise in their affections, you may be thankful and give God glory. Here's the way the Apostle Paul put it, lest you think Edwards was doing his own thing apart from Scripture. 2 Corinthians 1.24 Paul says this, not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. Have you ever thought the apostolic mandate was we are workers with you for your joy? Paul, why do you do what you do? I do it to make people happy. Or Philippians 1.25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain on earth and continue with you all for your progress and joy in faith. So two mega governing statements. One, my apostolic mission, workers with you for your joy. My reason for staying on earth instead of going to be with Jesus, to advance your joy. Those are big statements. Edwards has not gotten things biblically out of proportion here. Just yesterday, 
or was it the day before, getting ready for this. I thought I remembered Don Westblade, who used to go to Yale. He teaches at Hillsdale College now. And uh, he worked with the manuscripts of Edwards. And he sent me an unpublished sermon. I don't think it's been published yet. On Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1. And I, I remembered that, so I got up with the filing system and I dug it out and read parts of it. I want to just give you some flavor about how Edwards did his Christian hedonism. How he did his preaching in view of this reality of you must pursue your emotions. That is, you must pursue your joy in God. You must elevate the intensity of your delights in God if you would honor him. So, the text is Song of Solomon 5.1. The verse says, and you all know this is a love song. This is an intensely sexual love song. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends. Drink and be drunk with love. That was his text. (laughs) Puritan, he's a Puritan. (laughs) And he restated the doctrine. He always states the text, a little exposition, states the doctrine, and then explains it. And here's the doctrine. Persons need not and ought not to set any bounds to their spiritual and gracious appetites. That's the doctrine of the sermon. Persons need not and ought not, duty, ought not set any bounds to their spiritual and gracious appetites. And now a few quotes from the sermon. Neither ought persons to rest in any past or present degree of gracious appetites, or enjoyment of the objects of it, but to their utmost to be increasing the same, to be endeavoring all, to to be endeavoring by all possible ways to inflame their desires and to obtain more spiritual pleasures. God designed man for this happiness. He intended those appetites should be satisfied. He promised that such hungerings and thirstings should be fulfilled. Men, therefore, ought to endeavor that they obtain the satisfying of them. Let those appetites be never so strong and vigorous, yet they will not be equal to the merit of their objects. Let's back up and get that one again. The objects are God, Christ, salvation, the glories of the spiritual realities of heaven in God's presence. Let those appetites never be so strong and vigorous, yet they will never be equal to the merit of their objects. When men's appetites are violent towards earthly enjoyments, they are beyond the desert of their objects. Those things are not worth the so eager desire of a rational creature. 
Temporal pleasures are not worthy that the soul of man should be wholly possessed and governed by the desires after them. But tis not so with respect to spiritual enjoyments. They are of so exalted and excellent a nature that it is impossible that our desires after them should exceed their desert. Yea, they cannot be equal to it. Our hungerings and thirstings after God and Jesus Christ and after holiness can't be too great for the value of these things are infinite. Endeavor, therefore, to promote spiritual appetites by laying yourself in the way of allurement. (laughs) I mean... Who preaches like that? Who does theology like that? Who rises into heaven like that? Implication number two. The first was we should pursue our own and others' joy in God as a solemn duty. Implication number two. The meaning of hypocrisy is exposed more accurately and profoundly with this insight that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. With this insight, that true religion is joy in God. Hypocrisy is exposed with greater insight. Now, let me illustrate what I mean. Edwards was able to penetrate to the deceptiveness of the human part, unlike anybody I've ever read. And here's the quote that I think needs to be trumpeted from the housetops in self-esteeming America. This is the difference between the joy of the hypocrite and the joy of the true saint. The hypocrite rejoices in himself. Self is the first foundation of his joy. The true saint rejoices in God. True saints have their minds in the first place inexpressibly pleased and delighted with the sweet ideas of the glorious and amiable nature of the things of God. And this is the spring of all their delights and the cream of all their pleasures. But the dependence of the affections of hypocrites is in a contrary order. They first rejoice that they are made much of by God. And then on that ground, he seems a sort lovely to them. That's devastating. That is devastating. Let me say it again, that last part. Hypocrites first rejoice that they are made much of. I have heard the cross turn inside out like this so often. Look, he died for you. You must be a diamond in the rough. You are infinitely valuable because he paid an infinitely price for you. And the whole design of the cross becomes making much of people. When a person hears that gospel, they might by grace be saved. 
as often they probably feel a natural love of being made much of wakened. It feels really good. Who doesn't like to be made much of? And for that reason, the cross and God seem a sort lovely to them. And they say, sure, I'll believe that. A person who is God-oriented because God is man-oriented is man-oriented. And probably not yet a believer. Edwards was enabled by these insights to go so deep into my heart there as I read the religious affections that there were times when I was really scared. And that was good for me. If we enjoy God because he makes much of us as the foundation of our joy, then we are enjoying ourselves and our worth and our pride more than we are enjoying God. So the implication of that is go hard after God for the beauty that he is. Plead with him. Psalm 90 Verse 14, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad in you <coughs> all the days of my life. Implication number three. This truth that God glorifies himself in our delighting in him, this truth clarifies what the gospel ultimately is. It clarifies what the gospel ultimately is. The gospel is not ultimately that we are made much of or that we are forgiven or that we are justified or that we are regenerated, which is a controversial thing to say. Ultimately is the determining word there. The gospel the good news is not ultimately that my sins are forgiven, that I stand just before God. And the way I have felt that recently and the power of it is this. I have been forced to say by Edwards, who cares about being forgiven? Why do you care? If you know you've sinned, if you know you're guilty, if you know that there is judgment hanging over you, why do you care about being forgiven? Now, there are some really inadequate answers to that, which will not get you into heaven and will not honor God. And one of them is, <laughs> I like being forgiven because hell is hot and long. And I don't like pain. That's not a good answer. It's not an adequate answer. Not a wrong answer. It just doesn't honor God at all. It just honors your dislike of pain. Another one might be, I hate guilt feelings. I don't like to wake up in the morning and feel rotten. I like to feel good when I get up in the morning. Like, I don't have any guilt on me anymore. I hate getting up feeling bad. So if you've got a message that'll fix that, 
I'll buy that. No honor for God in that. Just your capacities for feeling happy in the morning. When you analyze every aspect of what the New Testament calls gospel, and you press it to be good news, it's because every one of them, forgiveness, justification, propitiation, redemption, salvation, reconciliation, every one of them is good news because they get us to God to enjoy. And that glorifies God. If you use them just to get you out of bad feelings or out of hell, and God is of little or no interest, sometimes I'll ask my people just to provoke them. Would you feel satisfied if you could go to heaven and have perfect health and all the toys you've ever dreamed of having here, perfect weather, all the natural beauties that are possible, all the friends and all the acquaintances you've ever wanted, all of them delighting in you fully, minus God. Would that be okay? Would you want to go there? Would that be adequate for your soul? And I fear that so many professing Christians would say, I guess that's where I am. Because that's the way I've always thought about heaven. Get to meet mom again and I won't get sick anymore and the weather will always be good. And if you're a Muslim, there'll be a lot of virgins there. (laughs) If you died in the right way. None of that Christian or Muslim view honors God. It honors golf and weather and health and friends and virgins. That's what it honors. It won't honor God. What honors God is when He's your treasure. He's your joy. He's your hope. He's your delight. You want to go there because He's there. I just picture people, I picture myself knocking on the door of heaven after I die. God opens the door, says, why are you here? And I say, hell is hot and long. <laughs> and the only, this is the only alternative. And I'd just soon be here. I would really, really prefer to be here than there. I think the door's going to shut in your face. Because you didn't honor him at all by that statement. The right answer is, he opens the door, he says, why are you here? He says, because you're here. Where else would I want to be? You are my life. You're my hope. You're my joy. I was designed for you. Discovering the fullness of your perfections and your glory and your magnificence is what eternity is all about. Isn't it? If it's not, where can I find it? It's you. And he will get a big smile across his face and say, oh, thank you. I am very honored by that. Please come in. (laughs) Oh, how crucial are the affections for God. Number four. It's almost the same as three, but I want to make it explicit. This insight of Edwards that delighting in God glorifies God clarifies for us what the 
cross of Christ accomplished. What the death of Jesus accomplished. We were talking over supper tonight about Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, which is slated to come out next Lenten season, which is just one amazing display of the horror of the sufferings of Christ in his last hours. And we were talking about the pros and cons and appropriateness of uh, not having any language in the movie that you can understand. At least that was his first conception, Aramaic, Hebrew, Latin, with no subtitles. There will be subtitles, I understand it, but the first thought there was just the visual impact. And we were talking about, hmm, is that a good idea? Uh, it's not a good idea if you only see Jesus suffer and don't know why he suffered. You need to know why he suffered. First Peter 3.18 puts it like this, Christ also suffered once for sins. Once, not repeatedly, once was enough. He was the Son of God. He died and suffered for sins, taking the place of sinners. The righteous for the unrighteous, and here comes the key sentence that makes it good news. If we stopped right here, it would not be good news. It hasn't said anything that makes me happy yet. I want to be eternally happy or it's not good news. I mean, if I die and go to hell, that's not good news. I want to be eternally happy. Good news is what gets me there. And here is the last phrase. I'll read the whole thing again. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Why did Christ die? To bring sinners by the virtue of his own righteousness and blood, into the presence of an infinitely glorious, holy God without being incinerated. The picture I have in my mind, I have, I was in a tornado, tornado, I mean a hurricane, Hurricane Aaron, Eric, what was the name of it? Aaron, 1980-something down in Pensacola, Florida, just like the one that came through here, probably not quite that big, and... Uh, we went down, we ended up back in a bedroom and uh, got down on the floor, not near windows, and came through about 80 mile an hour winds, toppled big trees, chopped off half the corner of the bedroom where we were with one big giant 300 year old pine tree, and then it stopped. And we walked outside, and you know where we were. We're in the eye of the storm. Blue sky, not a breeze blowing, the radio saying, you got 20 minutes, it'll be harder on the backside. Here we are in the middle of a hurricane, totally safe, comfortable. That's the way I feel about a cross-prepared entrance into God. He is a massive hurricane of holiness. The holiness would be beautiful if I could just be safe in it, which I would never be if I go there with my sins. But if I could have my sins forgiven by faith in a Redeemer, which is what Christ offers then he would take me into the presence of the creator of the universe whose glory outstrips the glory of all that he has made infinitely. And I will take an eternity to satisfy my soul beholding him. So the cross is clarified in what it achieved. Number five, we're almost done. 
It shows what love is. Edward's insight into the nature of my joy's relationship to the glory of God shows what love is and how the cross is a supreme act of love. We already said most of this, but let me just stress it. Love is not being made much of. What is it then? Love is at great cost to yourself doing whatever needs to happen to help another person be enthralled with what will be infinitely satisfying, namely God. Love is doing whatever it takes that you can do at great cost to yourself. It might cost you your life. Love is doing whatever you can do to enthrall another person with what is eternally satisfying, namely God. And in America, we've been taught for 50 years that love is the opposite. Namely, love is doing all that you can do to enthrall people with themselves. There's a whole gospel built around solving every child-rearing problem, solving every marriage problem, solving every educational problem, solving every urban kid problem by helping people be enthralled with the fact that they are somebody. And that's tragic. That's tragic. What human beings need, whether it's in the urban center or the suburbs, is to be enthralled with a reality outside themselves so that they forget about their honking self and love God. And I know this is what they know, because if you ask a person why they go to the Grand Canyon or why they go to the Alps, or why they go to the Rockies, or why they go to a movie that's just a big, huge display of grandeur. They will not say, because it increases my self-esteem. <laughs> they won't know quite what to say, because they don't know why they're there. All they know is something's going on in here really good. As they stand by the canyon and it falls away, makes them feel small, makes them feel vulnerable, makes them feel fragile. It's really good. It's really good. Stand before the Alps. They feel tiny. What if that fell over on them? (laughs) And they know they're standing there because they chose to come. They paid big bucks to get there. And it's not because it makes them feel big and important and like somebody. And there's a deep, sweet, wonderful common grace lesson there. Namely, God is whispering, maybe shouting, I made you for me. This mountain is a little echo of me. The Grand Canyon is a little echo of me. Even the Lord of the Rings is a little echo of me. It's just a little echo. We went out to eat. We've seen both of the Lord of the Rings on our anniversary or day day before after. And we went out to eat after the two towers. And 
I said to Noel, um, you know what I, I really like about that um, is because of what it says about Jesus. Because when I see the the magnitude, I mean, I know it's all little models and squeaky little things, and, <laughs> but but when you see the, the magnitude of the war, ten thousand orcs and rocks, you know, and the white horse just arriving at the nick of time, and everything is yes, 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 this is glorious. Every everything about that. Everything about that says to me, just look. There, it's happening in New Zealand. And, and New Zealand is a little teeny country on planet Earth. And planet Earth is a little teeny weeny planet in this solar system. And this solar system is a little teeny weeny solar system in the Milky Way. And the Milky Way is a little teeny weeny galaxy in this system. And Jesus Christ flung it out with the word of his power. That's what movies do for me. (laughs) I, I love as much grandeur as you can get onto a screen. But I just transpose the music up, up, up. Everything I see on planet Earth that's beautiful and glorious moves me to try to do the 10 to the 23rd power multiplication of Christ. To be loved is to be helped at the cost, at the cost of his son's life, to be helped to enjoy making much of him forever. To be loved is to be enthralled or to be helped to be enthralled with what will satisfy me most deeply forever. Finally, number six. This insight of Edwards enabled him to describe heaven in a fully God-centered way and to account for how our enjoyment of one another now and in heaven is not idolatry. So listen to this concluding quotation. I quote it, and I think we'll be done. I hope I can do justice to it, because when Edwards got going, it was amazing. The redeemed have all their objective good in God. God himself is the great good which they are brought to the possession and enjoyment of by redemption. He is the highest good and the sum of all that good which Christ purchased. God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. God is their wealth and treasure, their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament and diadem, and their everlasting honor and glory. They have none in heaven but God. He is the great good which the redeemed are received, into which the redeemed are received at death and which they are to rise to at the end of the world. The Lord God, He is the light of the heavenly Jerusalem and is the river of the water of life that runs and the tree of life that grows in the midst of the paradise of God. 
the glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be what will forever entertain the minds of the saints and the love of God will be their everlasting feast. The redeemed will indeed enjoy other things. They will enjoy the angels and will enjoy one another. But that which they will enjoy in the angels or each other or in anything else whatsoever that will yield them delight and happiness will be what will be seen of God in them. So if your mind and heart tonight are veiled to this experience, come to Christ Because the Bible says, when you come to Christ, the veil is lifted. Amen.